Hi all, thank you very much for joining us today. Today again, this time we will continue our discussions on Rand's thoughts on the culture. Today's essay is of living that. It was first written as a whole for a whole forum conference in 1968 and was later published as a chapter in the Voice of Reason in 1989. In Atlas Shrugged, there's a scene where uh, describing two lovers that goes, she, she wore slacks of cotton, summer dress, yet she was never so feminine as when she stood beside him, sagging his arms, abandoning herself to anything she he wished. In open acknowledgement judgment of his power to reduce her to helplessness by the pleasure he had the power to give her. He taught her every ma manner of sensuality he could invent. Isn't it wonderful that our bodies can give us so much pleasure? He asked once, quite simply. They were happy and radiantly innocent. They were both incapable of the conception that Joy is in. If in the 20th century, the local pr priest, uh, in, let's call him Francis, would have said to them that what they, they were doing was a sin because it contradicts God's will, one could be curious about the motives of the priest Francis. We will be observing this phenomenon, but today we will be observing this phenomenon on a much wider scale, on the scale of popes, philosophy, and the culture and the future of our, our civilization. As it's now tradition, we will be discussing this with Don Watkins and James Valiant. Don has co-authored books like Equally Unfair and The Moral Case for Finance. You can follow him on the website donswriting.com. And we also have James. He is a co-author of Creating Christ and The Passion of Finance Critics. Before we begin, feel free to make questions through, through the Super Chat feature on YouTube. We will be tracking it live. Uh, let's start. And first, I think it would be proper to make a bit um, of an introduction. So James, could, could you talk a bit more about the reception and the importance of this encyclical that we will be talking about? Well, the 1960s was a very big time for the Catholic Church. A um, hundred years earlier, there had been the Vatican. Well, first, let's talk about ecumenical councils. Since the fourth century, the Catholic Church has been holding giant ecumenical councils, about 21 of them, to decide major issues of controversy in the Catholic Church. And um, in the 1960s, there was a very important controversy uh, and the last great ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, the Vatican II Council. It is the council that said it's okay to give the liturgy in uh, the local language as opposed to Latin, for example, and got rid of fish on Fridays and several other things. About 100 years earlier, the last council had declared the Pope to be infallible. So everything the Pope says, even in an encyclical like this, is the official statement of the church and God's position on the matter. And so there was a debate in the 1960s between conservative and liberal Catholics over this Vatican II. And wake of Vatican II, which happened in the mid 1960s, Pope Paul issued two, two of the most important encyclicals maybe the popes have ever issued. One on economics and politics, Populorum Progressive, the Progress of People, and of Living Death, Humanae Vitae. Um, and that's what we're talking about here. One sort of appeased the left because it came out in favor of a global, in effect, totalitarian welfare state. In the other, no economic system is as good as how it treats the least fortunate, you know, sort of a, a premonition of Rawls to come. Uh, in this one, on living, uh, on human life, 
it discusses uh, the church's position on things like birth control, abortion, the role of sex in marriage. And it's important to remember that the Catholic Church assumes that sex outside of the context of marriage is always a sin, because that's spelled out quite clearly in, in, the, in the Bible. And, uh, in effect, but what both St. Paul and Jesus say in the New Testament is that they would prefer uh, Christians to be celibate if they could do that. But if they can't be fully celibate, then marriage is the only proper outlet. And Paul makes that quite clear. Jesus seems to echo that himself in the Gospels. So they, this anti-sex attitude, or got to be in sex, marriage to be legitimate sex, has always been part of the church. So what they're talking about here is birth control and abortion in the context of marriage, of a serious romantic relationship. And I think that's an important context here to bear in mind. But the church has not changed its position over the last 50 years on these matters uh, in substance. It is still the position of the Catholic Church that all forms of artificial contraception are a sin, a violation of God's ordained plan, and abortion is simply murder from their perspective. That was the meaning and upshot of this. Thank you. Um, there's uh, James, there are some people on YouTube that are saying that your microphone is a little bit low. Could you, is there a way that you could um, adjust it a bit? I will do, endeavor to do so. <laughs> um, Don, in the meantime, I was wondering if I could ask you if, uh, why does Rand think that this is a significant topic to talk about in a, in a formal forum conference? And why does she think that it's a philosophical issue? Well, as Jim pointed out, the, these statements were culturally relevant in a way that, you know, current encyclicals are really not, although they still tend to get some press. But I mean, if you're thinking about the status of the Catholic Church, um, particularly outside of South America in the 60s, it was still very, very influential. And we had yet seen the rise of evangelical Christianity as a real force in the culture. So this was really the spokesman. The Pope was the spokesman of Christianity at a cultural level at that point. And so from that perspective, it was certainly relevant to Rand that here's a major statement from the leading spokesperson of the leading religion. And so then the issue is, why does she think it's a philosophic issue? Well, first of all, she thinks that sex generally is a philosophic issue, or at least it is philosophy has something to say about it. Leonard Peikoff once said that she reduced it to that it's good. But why is it good? Well, that's rooted in really deep philosophic issues that are going to come out in this essay. But the, but the key issue here comes down to, is the individual an end in him and her or herself? Do you have a right to live for the sake of your own happiness? And that's really what's at stake here. So it's a philosophically influential document. It bears on a very deep issue in philosophy, your right to exist for your own sake, particularly as expressed through sex. And then there's a, there's a real, um, how would you put it? the meaning, the full meaning and implications of the Pope's statement are not obvious, that it requires real philosophic detection. 
And so this is one of the ongoing themes of Ayn Rand's work, which is philosophy is everywhere. And I'm going to help you see that. And that's how, indeed how she starts out this essay by saying, if you're interested in the role of philosophy in human life here, look at it, you're going to see it and you're going to see it's life or death consequences. And that's the, the kind of foundation for why she thinks that this is a, a crucial issue to examine in a Ford Hall forum kind of setting. Yeah, if I could just add to that, you know, uh, a lot of secular thinkers, you know, academic philosophers and so forth, they will dismiss what the Pope says because, well, of course, that's just, you know, religion. But the fact is that altruism is still the ruling morality for the left, right, secular, religious, and whether or not people have rejected the metaphysics of religion or not, they still accept a, a particular metaphysics of religion or not, they still accept as unquestioned, the morality of altruism. And that, of course, leads to collectivist consequences, public policy-wise. And, of course, altruism is always rooted in some kind of irrationality, some kind of mysticism. And so the basic pattern here is, of course, Ayn Rand saw religion as a crude form of philosophy. It is addressing ethical issues here. It is, it is addressing epistemological issues here. There's no question that it is a philosophical level discussion. And Christianity is the leading religion in the world today. Still over 2 billion people believe in it, and more than half of those people claim to be Catholics. So uh, it is uh, philosophically relevant. It's a philosophical issue. And whether or not a person, you know, I always had a joke with a friend of mine who lives in Italy. He said, you know, Italy is just full of communists and Catholics. And his response to me when I said that was sometimes both. <laughs> in effect, the communism or socialism, as Ayn Rand has pointed out, is really just a secularized version of Christian morality, which it really is. Um, so that's why it's even relevant, even to the secular uh, student of philosophy to understand what the Pope was saying and why. Thank you. So I think we could move to the first layer. The, the whole essay moves like a layer of arguments, peeling up like where you can go deeper and deeper on the motives of the essay. Um, and the first layer is basically the basic argument. Um, so I was wondering, James, because you you've already talked a bit about that um what is the pope's view on contraception uh, are there any exceptions that he accepts for contraception or any methods that he's going for um or, or against well the key here is that you're not really in control of your reproductive decisions or the impact of sex on your life you're just part of god's plan you're an agent, in effect, of God's plan. And anything that interferes with God's original plan is therefore a sin, is a sin. So in, within that framework, we are, he acknowledges that there are people who are naturally infertile. Is it a sin for married couples? Because remember, that's all we're talking about here is married couples, the only permissible kind of sex for the Pope. Uh, married couples who are not fertile naturally. Well, they can go ahead and have sex because they're not violating God's plan. God presumably made them infertile, and that's part of their plan. God also made them sexual. So, and besides, miracles might still occur. Who knows? So long as the act of sex itself has the potential, given God's setup, to produce a child, it's okay. But that's the only real justification for it. 
the only form of birth control that the church to this day recognizes is the so-called rhythm method. In other words, marking the calendar to, so that you're aware of your female spouse or female spouse in this case has to be because Catholic Church spouse's uh, period and you're timing it for her less fertile periods as against her more fertile periods. It's not terribly reliable, but it's the only uh, form of birth control the church allows using the calendar. See, that's part of God's plan. Women are not always fertile, but humans are always sexual. You know, most sex has nothing to do with reproduction biologically for humans. Most sex has nothing to do with reproduction. But the Catholic Church insists that every act of sex at least have the potential for reproduction. So any artificial means, such as the birth control pill or a condom or a diaphragm or anything of that sort, is a sin because you're using artificial means to interfere with God's plan, with what God wanted to have happen. And you've always got to bear that in mind. You're not in dominion or control of your own reproductive uh, 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 power and capacity. It's really, you're just an agent in God's plan. And that is why it is always a sin to take steps that would make you infertile in any act, artificial steps that would make you infertile in any act of sex. Now, we will accept the natural givens of, say, natural infertility or the rhythm method, but we will not accept anything that's outside of God's plan, such as the female uh, menstrual period or uh, just sheer abstinence. That's the church's position. Abstinence is actually a good thing, says the church, because it increases somehow the intimacy and depth in a marital relationship, which is a curious assertion, but that is their position. Um. Thank you, Don. Um, so Ren also talks about um, that telling these kind of issues and, and asking for this kind of uh, behavior has deep consequences uh, for a human life. Could you talk about that and also about what are the arguments, the, the justifications that, that the church is using um, to justify this, even acknowledging that there is a um, um, the, the, there are deep consequences of not having contraception in in sex. Well, that's the big question for her. What the the whole way that she's approaching this is to say, all right, look, what they're basically saying is, aside from the rhythm method, any kind of you know artificial birth control is out. And so, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that basically every sexual uh, interaction with your wife or husband, you know, you're rolling the dice. Like maybe we have another lifetime commitment with all of that entails and all of that involves. Maybe we're already struggling to pay the bills and put our current kids through the mortgage, uh, put our current kids through school, pay the mortgage. But if we want to, if we want to make love, honey, like we got to be willing to go deeper into debt and to, you know, possibly like not be able to send this kid to a state school and so on. The it's this crippling kind of fear that's going to be associated with sex. The idea that every time I mentioned a roll of the dice, it's a roll of the dice where, you know, one is we have an amazing time tonight and the other is decades and decades of responsibility that we may not be able to handle. And her view is 
Well, that should lead to a very big question, right? Which is, there must be a really good reason you would put somebody in that kind of position. Like you, like imagine if I, you know, was offering you like, Hey, uh, let's go out tomorrow night, but you know what? There's pretty good chance. Like your whole life might fall apart. You think, all right, well, why would you sentence me to this? Um, and that's where she says, all right, well, what are the arguments offered? And as Jim mentioned, there really is no argument except for, well, that's what God demands. And so you have to obey. And then she'll talk about certain kinds of what she thinks ultimately are rationalizations where this increases intimacy and this will keep people from philandering and so on. Um, but ultimately, it all comes down to the idea of like, look, God has a plan. He designed you a certain way and for certain uses. And if you disobey, like that's not what God wants. And then the rest of it is really trying to understand, well, if you have that kind of, if you're putting people in that kind of terrifying position and you have what amounts to a kind of lousy justification, what in the world is really going on? Like what really is the motive for this kind of view? And she doesn't think that the motive can even be made sense of like a re really taking seriously that God would will it because it's, what kind of God would put us in that position? Like that, even on its own terms, even if you take religion seriously, she thinks that doesn't make sense if we're supposed to believe that God is just and merciful and loving. And so she thinks that there's a, a real issue of the motivations involved. And that's part of what uh, we're going to go on to explore in the rest of it. But I think it's, it's worth pausing on her methodology here, which is, all right, here's a, an intellectual argument. She doesn't just start parsing it right away. She asks, what would this mean in reality? What would this mean if people really tried to live by it? And then, okay, if, it, if that seems really nightmarish, like what's the reasoning behind it that could lead us to think that this is even like a conceivable way that human beings should uh, live their lives? And if you don't have a reason then, uh, that is at all plausible, then it becomes a real question of motives. And so part of what is going to come out in this essay and in our discussion, I assume, is uh, a point that we've touched on numerous times, but I think is really important, which is that Rand thinks that evil philosophies are systems of rationalization. She thinks that you can't understand what's going on in bad philosophic systems, including religious systems, if you don't understand that they're trying to rationalize bad motives. And so that kind of way of looking at things is going to come out throughout the essay. Right. And the motive here is primarily psychological. It's not political or metaphysical, she points out. I'd like to use just one example from my own ex personal experience. I grew up across the street, and I'm not going to name the family's name, from a sincerely Catholic family. And by sincerely Catholic, I mean sincerely Catholic went to mass, kids all were confirmed, hardcore believers. And when the Pope came to visit California, they all went out to see the pontiff. That sent all their kids to Catholic school. In the course of their marriage, they had 12 pregnancies, 11 of which produced children, one of whom was deaf. And in the course of having 11 children, some of whom had special problems, it became apparent to me, even as a teenager, that the children and the dad was never seen. He had to work day and night, constantly, seven days a week. He was a skilled and intelligent man, 
devoted to his work, but he had no time whatever for his children. He was an absentee dad because he had to slave constantly just to keep food on the table. The older sisters had to help mom in taking care of the younger kids as time went on. The last two pregnancies nearly killed the mother. She was in her 40s. The second to last pregnancy, the doctor said, you shouldn't have another pregnancy, ma'am. This could kill you. She went ahead, of course, and had a second pregnancy because that was part of God's plan. You question them. You literally question these people. You're not giving proper attention to these 11 children. You can't be, and they were not given proper attention, nor could they send them, despite the father's hard work and high income, to colleges and so forth. There were certain things they had to just give up for these kids. Forget the attention they gave them. And if you were to ask both of these, and I had a brief opportunity to ask both of these parents this question, why? Why would you do that to yourself? They literally regard themselves as pawns in God's larger plan. This is God's plan for us. He said in Genesis, men and women are like this. They have to be fruitful and multiply. That's our duty. That's that. And any interference with God's plan would be a sin on our part, even if it made our lives infinitely better and our children's lives infinitely better, which they could actually see. Didn't matter to them. They are cogs in God's plan. That sounds pretty bad. Um, I, I think we could move to the second layer of the argument um, which is basically the um, um, assumption that the, 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 the encyclical is thinking about what sex is. Um, basically, it's assuming that it's a materialistic, um, animalistic thing. Could you talk a bit more about that, Don? Well, I don't think it's... I mean, it has kind of two dual perspectives, right? On the one hand, it treats it as kind of materialistic and, and, and animalistic in a certain way. And that's the perspective from which its religion is saying, like, no, that's not very good. But on the other hand, it tries to tie it to, and I wish I could remember Ayn Rand's exact wording, but like this whole kind of, oh, shucks, folks next door, friendship, you know, my spiritual buddy, God's in the bedroom, like all of these really... Um, uh, I'm I'm going blank on the word that I'm looking for, but a kind of mawkish uh, view of sex that supposedly makes it spiritual in a way that's divorced from material. Um, the the but the basic idea is, and this is one of the main points Ayn Rand's going to stress is that either way it's viewed as a means to an end. So it's either supposed to serve the int the chaste intimacy of marriage, which is the most ridiculous phrase that you've ever heard associated with sex, um, or the sheer you know pumping out of babies, like that that it's it's one of those two. And if you're not using it for that, then it's it's clearly wicked, and and so that's the kind of general view of sex. So it's she stresses that it's um, historically you know, the view is basically just sex is outright evil and immoral, but that what the kind of modern church view she thinks is even worse than that. It's the kind of view that leads people to view that it's immoral. It's that it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. And 
we'll talk about what she thinks a proper view of sex is. But what we can say right now is the major part is that it's an end in itself. It's I'm doing this for my own enjoyment, for my own pleasure. And I don't, that's the justification for it, that it's not a means to an end. And that's ultimately because I am not a means to an end. Each human life is an end in itself. As Ayn Rand so eloquently said in Anthem, uh, your happiness needs no higher aim to vindicate it. Your existence needs no higher aim to vindicate it. You're it. And if someone comes along to tell you that your happiness is an end in itself, that your experience of your highest artistic values or your uh, experience of loving other people, particularly romantic love, then what they're telling you is that your life is not an end in itself. If, se if sexual enjoyment isn't an end in itself, then your life is not, in effect, an end in itself, its own motive, its own justification. Ayn Rand understood that once you posit a supernatural dimension, you have driven a wedge between the ideal and the real. You've said there's this higher reality out there, and this world is low and corrupt. It must lead to a dichotomy between real and the ideal, between theory and practice, between mind and body. Ultimately, religious religions of the East, religions of the West, don't accidentally both come to the conclusion that we should be ascetic monks and torture our own bodies in various ways. Vows of poverty and celibacy that Christian uh, clergymen take in the West, or the your yogi, your self-abusing yogis of the East. They, in a, mysticism ends up, in effect, as a war on the human body. Einhorn understood all of that. Thank you. I think there's also a, another issue complemented, like complemented with the arguments of the of the encyclical, which is a weird way of um, conceptualizing actuality and potentiality, and it I think it shows up in both the uh, something that we will talk about later in abortion, but also here. Uh, in, in the idea of um, um, people having the potential to breed and because they have the potential, they must breed. Uh, like it's in God's will to, to breed. Could you talk a bit more about maybe a proper way to conceptualize actuality and potentiality and uh, the way that the Pope is saying, James? Well, this, this encyclical in particular did not of course, say that celibacy isn't a bad thing. It's, celibacy is a good thing. Celibacy is actually the preferred thing. So, uh, you know, the, there's all kinds of anti-sex stuff in Christianity. Jesus had to be born of a virgin for some reason so that he could be free from original sin in some thinking or something. But the fact is that celibacy is cool. You, just because you have the potential to have children doesn't mean that you have to exercise it, even in the Catholic Church's view. Your option is abstinence. Your only option is abstinence. If you care to exercise a basic feature, a basic potentiality of your biological nature, sex, then it must always be potentially reproductive. It must always be potentially fecund. It is when you choose to have sex, because God gave us the option to, not, to have sex or not to have sex, then you do have a positive duty to keep childbirth as a possible possibility from that sex act that always has to be out there and uh, you know uh, just touching on what don was saying earlier 
the Catholic Church has advocated laws against birth control for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. It's not like they want Catholics to basically have more kids than everyone else. No, they want these birth control rules applied to everyone, Protestants, Jews, everyone else in various countries. They want it to be the law of the land. So again, their motives are have, have got to be deeper, <laughs> much deeper uh, than anything, <clears throat> uh, say, political. Like a lot of people say, the Catholic Church or the Mormons in, in their similar approach to having large families are just trying to out, you know, create greater numbers than any other religions. But that's really not the motive, is it? Yeah, I mean, the way that, that the distinction comes up in this point in the essay is, I mean, basically the, the encyclical's argument is, look, you have the potential to have children, so you have to have children. I mean, that's, that's basically what they say. And Rand's answer is that, well, no, the relevant distinction here is between the metaphysically given and the man-made. So in saying that, like, look, you have the potential, you can't change the potential, um, just as you can't do any, you know, you can't, like, determine everything, fa every fact about your body. Um, her view is like, well, no, but you're changing the issue. Yeah, you can't change everything about your body, but you decide what you do with it. You decide in the capacities and how you, uh, you, your, you know, capacities are given to you, but how you exercise them is a matter of choice. And the point is that that choice should be based on a rational hierarchy of values, not, well, I can have babies, so I better have babies. And she points out that, like, if you thought about this for two seconds, you would see that that's true, which is you have the capacity to murder. You're going to become a murderer. No, it's an issue of your choice. Um, and so this is part of if you and if you read the the encyclical, which you should, um, you get like this is not her straw manning the argument. That's exactly what's going on. It's kind of that straightforwardly bad, which is, again, it's part of what she's highlighting here is that this is not an honest attempt to get at the truth. This is not I'm really struggling to figure out the right way for human beings to deal with sex because you would never. Uh, and, and like, look, the Pope and all the people who were involved in the writing of this, like these are smart people. You don't get to be there unless you're you know, deeply intelligent. Um, you don't commit that kind of intellectual mistake unless you're trying to rationalize something, unless you have something you're trying to achieve with your ideas versus I'm trying to get at the truth. Um, thank you. Um, there's... Uh, also, the idea of um, sex as pleasure being against natural order, order, and the idea of uh, man uh, being really incapable of regulating his desires. Um, but Don, could you talk a bit more? The, the the encyclical also talks a bit more on the role of reason in sex according to the church. Uh, could you talk a bit more about that? And maybe could you discuss a bit more how influential this idea has been maybe i think it to me remind me a lot to freudianism could you talk a bit more about that well so we've touched on a couple times in various ways that there's a a soul body dichotomy this is a part point that ran brings out several times in her essay which is that the way that the church sees human nature is that we have the body, which is the kind of part of the material world, 
that's down here. This is the fallen part of us. This is the part that is kind of leading us away from God and into sin and temptation. And then the spiritual, which is the higher side of us. And that is what reason is a part of it. Basically, the view is that what reason is supposed to do is supposed to kind of um, take this part of us that's urging us to go out and focus on the world instead of this higher part of reality, which is God. And reason's job is to kind of say, down, boy, down. No, 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 no. Now, reason is not all powerful. Can't keep, you know, it, 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 it cannot totally rule your life. That's why we're all, you know, going to sin. We're, we cannot withhold temptation constantly and uh, without exception. Only Jesus can do that. Um, but reason can try its best. And, you know, let's hopefully, if you're, if you're a really good person, more often than not, maybe uh, reason will be able to keep the body uh, side of that dichotomy in place. And so sex is just a very striking example of right of that, right? Which is their view is that all of us want around want to run around jumping on anything that moves just for kicks without concern for consequences, without concern for values or morality. And it's reason that kind of comes in and says, no, 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 no. Settle down. Uh, you know, only use the either keep it completely in your pants or only do so under these very tight guidelines that um, channel it into no, more noble uses. The noble use of promoting the you know chaste intimacy of marriage, or the noble use of popping out babies. Like those. That that's basically what reason's function is. And that view of human nature and that kind of view of sex, I mean, it's enormously widespread, including non-Christians. I don't know enough about Freud. I mean, I can say kind of what I, I mean, I can guess based on what I've heard, but I haven't read him. So I don't like to comment on thinkers I haven't read. But you can see that, uh, that kind of view of human nature everywhere. In general, people view us as we have these kind of, um, you know, basically pleasure-oriented instincts and then our kind of intellectual ability is the ability to, you know, somewhat um, tamp those down a little bit. And it's kind of regulating this, this tug of war that's taking place inside of our body. And sex is just one of those places where our passions, our instincts uh, are particularly likely to rule us. And what, um, what it means to, you know, become a good person is to um, push those down. And it's, it's the complete opposite of how Ayn Rand thinks about human nature, which is that she thinks ultimately that your desires come from your thinking. It comes from your mind. Now, it doesn't come directly there. It's not like you decide this is good and automatically you feel all the emotions that would follow from your intellectual judgment. It's an indirect process, but it is. A, but there is a relationship there and one can and should strive to bring those two things into harmony. And so it's not that we have this kind of like insatiable desires disconnected from our ideas and values on the, and she thinks sex is one of the most striking examples and pieces of evidence for this. It's that she thinks our sexual desires are so revealing of our ideas and values, are including our evaluation of ourself, that if a person has high self-esteem and they value themselves, then they're not going to feel sexual desire for kind of like any uh, living organism uh, that comes along. They're going to uh, 
have it'll be they'll want kind of deep serious values in common with somebody before there's going to be sexual desire and she thinks that it's the, the opposite is true as well that a person without self-esteem is go, is going to seek it from sex seek the pretense of it and indeed what looks like somebody's kind of bodily physical urges you know pushing them in this direction in that direction is actually a revel it, it what it is revealing is not that they're being led by their body but that they're being led by their lack of self-esteem and that the and sex is just one form in which people can attempt to fill the vacant space left by a lack of self-esteem yeah you know jesus said in the new testament you've heard it say you know don't commit adultery it's a sin it's one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus, of course, went further and said, I say, if you feel lust in your heart, you've already sinned. This is, of course, to condemn humanity for its very nature. A human being cannot go through a day, apparently, without sinning several times, lusting in their heart. And uh, it is obviously a form of Neoplatonism, right? It says the material world is a low... Uh, order as opposed to the spiritual realm where there's you can find perfection um, so christianity is very much expressing a neoplatonic view of mind versus body the body over here the material stuff is the low corrupting element and it's basically governed by instinct now it is similar to freud isn't it it's like it the id we have these uncontrollable unknown you know ayn rand as don points out actually understood where emotions came from they had a cognitive basis no such understanding exists here. There's some low automatic, uh, you know, uh, kick in the gut that we get that is just part of our corrupt physical nature. Um, now, notice that uh, reason has entered the picture in Catholic thinking with Thomas Aquinas and the thinkers of the, the 1200s um, in reintroducing Aristotelian logic into uh, Catholic thinking. And Aquinas himself became a doctor of the church in the 16th century. So his philosophy became, his neo-Aristotelian Catholic philosophy became the official doctrine of the church. So there is a role for reason, but it is basically just what Don says. It's in containing the, the naturally sinful impulse of sex. That sex is, that sex is. What's interesting here is to further this out, it's not just religious people. But you've noticed that in the last half of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, there are secular leftists who have basically adopted the same view of sex. Feminists, women who, you know, considering women a sex object is wrong. Having beauty pageants is bad for the self-esteem of women, right? Beauty is really not to be singled out or special, given any special recognition. It can't be regarded as a value. That's as physical and low and Right. And so they become sort of the feminist Puritans who are opposed to any objectification of women. On the other hand, you've got these standardless free love hippie Marxist types. They basically accepted that view of sex, too, haven't they? There's no standards. You can you know, have sex with anything that moves in a heartbeat or if you're that narrow minded or anything in a skirt. So that they have they've abandoned standards altogether. It's just the other side of the same coin. Just the other side of the same coin regarding sex as merely a material thing that has nothing to do with reason or high spiritual values. This was not the view, by the way, of Aristotle. I know he's only talking about friendship in his ethics, but even he understood that uh, the affection of friendship was the result of an admiration of virtue, 
a response to virtue that you see in someone else. Um, Christianity and Neoplatonism took us in a giant leap backwards on this whole topic. Thank you. Um, so continuing the mind-body dichotomy, we have talked about uh, the animalistic part, part, the animalistic view of um, the, the church on sex, but could we talk a, a bit more about uh, marriage? And Don, you have already said about uh, the description of uh, of marriage as chaste intimacy, special personal friendship, discipline proper to purity, unselfish duty. Um, James, could you do you want to say something about that? Um, and maybe um, I have another question about that for, for them. Well, I ran really zeroes in on the point here. The distinction between romantic love, and we presume that romantic love is a part of marriage in her mind, right? We're talking about a serious relationship. Marriage, which is the Catholic Church is talking about here, then calling it a form of friendship is to obliterate the actual distinction in the relationship here. If there is no sexual component, if there's not this other additional component, it's just friendship. It is not romantic love, and it's not an ideal marriage by any means. It is the church, she, as she points out, here the church is saying, well, isn't it good that there could be marital abstinence? Because after all, we wouldn't want men to regard their wives as sex objects. Ayn <laughs> points out, any wife of any self-esteem wants to be an object of sexual desire for her husband. Imagine the mentality that would say you don't want to be an object of sexual desire for your partner. But that's exactly what the church is saying is a virtuous thing. Obliterating, in effect, the difference between romantic love and just ordinary friendship, which you can feel for uh, people you don't feel sexually attracted to. So uh, it may have no sexual component at all. The difference with romantic love is its seriousness and that sexual component. Nor is there anything wrong with that sexual component, as the church seems to imply. Don, what do you think um, are the consequences of seeing marriage as this kind of thing? And could you um, say something more about the implications on one of the quotes saying that abstinence is of a higher value and its relationship to these they cut me. Well, I mean, there's a lot one could say about it, but I'll I'll say a few things. I happen to just be watching uh, The Sopranos right now, which uh, properly enough is you know Italian mobsters who are all Catholic, and the basic ideas like you have your marriage, and that woman basically her job is to stay at home and raise your kids, and then you have your gumar who's like your girlfriend on the side that you see over and over again. And then you just hook up with whoever you want elsewhere about that. And obviously this is particularly pronounced among mobsters. But if you want to ask seriously, what does this view of marriage look like? It looks exactly like that. Like my wife, no, that's not the object of my desire and sexual passion. She raises the kids. And then I have to get out, you know, I have to have a sexual outlet of some sort because I can't live by what the Pope's telling me. And in effect, it's uh, not to put self-esteem on the side of gangsters. But the point is, Ayn Rand has this line of like a person with self-esteem would run to the nearest whorehouse. Um, but it's that kind of view. It's that you actually are 
destroying marriage in any proper sense of the word by saying like, no, this is your good friend. And like, you know, if you, if you guys have to sleep together to make babies or cause you just can't resist it or, you know, it, 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 you know, it helps you be more intimate. Okay, fine. Go ahead and do that. Um, it's utter destruction of marriage is what it is in any proper sense. It's, and uh, I don't even like to think about it as destruction of marriage. I think to make marriage an essential in this context is itself an abomination. It, the context, and I don't think Ayn Rand would have stressed the issue of marriage if she was just writing a straightforward, this is how I think about, and indeed in her, when she's just talking about you know, her view uh, of, of romantic love and sex, it, the category is romantic love. It's not marriage that, that, and she has said elsewhere, like that's, that's another issue. Like you, you can be in love and not yet be in a position to think, all right, is this a final choice? And um, is like, are, should, are we in a position to commit to spend our whole lives together? I mean, she thinks that's a secondary and, and important question. She thinks marriage, uh, I mean, she got married. So she thinks like it's a legitimate institution and, and it, a proper you know endeavor in human life um but then in the context of uh, sex the real category is romantic love and that's really what's being destroyed here is it's it's trying to sever romantic love from selfish desire and the it's doing more than that as we'll get to there's it's a more it's an assault on more than love but uh, if you think about Rand's view of the precondition of love and what love and sex are as it, the precondition being self-esteem and then sex is the expression of self-esteem, then in, in attacking and undermining love, what they're ultimately doing is undermining and attacking self-esteem. Absolutely. What else can be the motive of telling someone that lust in their heart is already a sin but to get them to feel bad about their sexual nature as such. You are already a sinner if you find someone attractive. You are already a sinner if you have a normal biological sexual reaction. Wow, that's designed to get people to bow their heads in shame and humility about their own nature. And Ayn Rand properly detects that that is the, psych that is the real motive behind all this mumbo jumbo and the encyclical is to get people to bow their heads and in, in effect in shame and guilt about sex, wanting sex, even in marriage, we, we should go for this higher friendship of, you know, chaste uh, relationship and not discipline. It gets the whole idea of romantic love wrong. It is about the selfish interest of the parties involved. And it, by the, oh, I'm sorry. But... Oh, go on, yeah. I mean, just to hammer on Jesus for a second. Um, so it, it clearly, or at least the way that, you know, I, I have seen Jesus interpreted is like, he's, he's making wider points than the narrow one. So it's the wider point about sin is that it's the desire to sin, not just the act that counts. So then is the point that Jesus didn't feel any desire to sin? that he didn't feel any desire to cheat. But the whole perspective we're taught about Christ is not that things were easy for him. It's no, he had the same temptations that we all did that he had to struggle against, but because he was all good, he didn't ever give in to them. But if we take him seriously, then the meaning of his perfection has to be he didn't desire sin, in which case he didn't have any kind of moral achievement. So it's such a, it's such a, uh, 
I mean, picking apart contradictions to Christianity is not exactly. We should all a, that note, but on that note, there's a really funny aspect to medieval art. They would often have uh, crucifixion depictions or Jesus cruci- depictions where the onlookers would literally be looking at and pointing at his crotch, his genitalia. And that was thematically, they get the f- idea behind it. It was thematically to emphasize exactly what Don was just saying there. Jesus was of mortal flesh. He was all man and all God at the same time. He was morally perfect, but you see, he also had a penis. <laughs> We're going to emphasize that by pointing it at him. So look, wow, you mean a creature with a penis didn't have a, didn't lust in his heart all the time like the rest of us who have penises? <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was in fact the, the point that was being emphasized. He had the body of a man, but resisted all sin and temptation. Wow. Isn't that crazy? The, you know, when you go back to this God plan thing, it's really very consistent. In the 1800s, there were doctors who wanted to use chloroform as anesthesia to reduce the pain of women during childbirth. Childbirth is one of the most painful things. I mean, it's uh, up there with heart attacks and kidney stones and beyond that. It's an extremely painful process that can last for hours or days. And so a 19th century doctor said, let's use some chloroform. The Catholic Church officially came out against it. No, Eve's punishment when she was kicked out of the Garden of Eden was to feel birth pains. And if you're going to prevent her from having birth pains, you're interfering with God's plan. God's plan is that a woman should suffer in childbirth. So the church officially opposed anesthesia, especially in the context of childbirth. They opposed Jenner's first inoculations. They said it was against God's plan not to be open to being able to catch some terrible disease, some deadly disease like smallpox. Literally, that was the church's position on these things. You cannot interfere with God's plan. And so it makes perfect sense. Now, note, birth control goes back thousands of years. The ancient Romans and Greeks had condoms. There were abortifact uh, herbs, chemicals that women took that would stimulate an abortion, in, especially in the early months of pregnancy. There was a slight risk of overbleeding and so forth. There's those chemicals, you, they didn't know the right amounts and stuff. But birth control and abortion have been practiced for thousands of years. And the churches, in effect, had the same position on it. They just had to really clarify it in the sexual revolution of the 60s, that we still mean it. And notice something really horrifying uh, that uh, about what James said. So it's not just that we can't interfere with God's plan to stop the pain of late uh, of childbirth. Notice the perspective on reason. Reason can and must be used to push away pleasures. You're you're desiring these pleasures, and your reason is your ability to squelch them and say no to them. But you can't use reason to avoid pain. You can't use reason to achieve a positive or to avoid a negative. You can only use it to squelch down the things that will cause you to that you that you desire and want. And I mean that is the the monstrous nature of it is that there's no room for positives in human life. And even this kind of uh, paying tribute or lip service to reason is uh, I mean we th- we are very pro reason. So you might think oh we have something in common with the you know church which is upholding the power and importance of acting by reason but no their whole view is that reason is um it's basically your tool that's supposed to go to war with yourself and i mean that is let's put it gently not the objectivist view 
that beautiful quote you started us with, Anine Alejandro, was really wonderful from Atlas Shrugged about uh, Dagny and Francisco's early relationship. What a beautiful passage that is. They were not married. They were young people who had serious, serious admiration for each other. And they were exploring, as young people do, their sexual natures in an innocent way. Um, that is exactly the mentality the church does not want people to have about sex. Well, and it's a, it's a view that I think some objectivists don't want people to have uh, about sex. There's definitely a puritanical streak in objectivism. And I've certainly heard that in effect, if you're not willing to commit to marriage, then like you're not, you're not in romantic love. And if you're not in romantic love, uh, then you can't have sex. And that is like, not Ayn Rand's view at all. Ayn yeah, and it's really important that, so first of all, Francisco and, and I've heard like teenagers aren't in a position to have sex therefore because like they they don't, you know, know, they're not at the level that they can know their values. And so it's, yeah, not only were Dagny and Francisco having sex as teenagers, um, but they weren't in love by Ayn Rand's understanding of love. The way she used the word was, uh, and, and it's, it's notable, Dagny never, says that to anybody uh, except for Galt. And I don't even know if she exactly says it to Galt, but the, we're given that, yeah, this is her, the way she'll put his final choice. And Ayn Rand often um, talks about romantic love as she uses the term, which is a much higher standard than I think most people do, is it's about like, this is my final choice. This is what I'm looking for in the world. And she thinks, yeah, you can be wrong. It's not that you make your final choice and then you're stuck with that person. Although I've also heard objectivists defend that kind of view. You know, Thankfully even, not. Even, Go ahead. Even for a time was uh, under, uh, at least was confused on this point. It was one time way back in the fifties when he was dating a new girl and he actually mentioned to Ayn Rand, you know, I, I'm, I'm dating this new girl, and this is a story he tells. It's really funny. And Rand said back to him, oh, that's great, Leonard. You, is it just sex, or do you think it's serious? Leonard was sort of taken aback that the author of The Fountainhead would think that just sex is okay. And she came back, you're young. You're still finding out. How are you going to find out <laughs> if it's serious, if you don't explore these kind of things? The whole idea of that was sort of a new idea to Leonard, but uh, that was Rand's view, by the way. Um, the fourth layer of the essay um, talks about sex as means, not ends, but I think we have uh, covered that. So I think the next question would be uh, Rand's view on sex because she puts it in this part of the essay and, and she puts it because I think it connects with the next arguments that she's going to make. Um, so could you discuss a bit more on uh, Rand's view on sex and also on reason and values, which are some topics that we have been um, talking about, but maybe it would be clearer to the audience to knowing completely fleshed out. For animals, sex is essentially a biological process that their own pleasure pain mechanism or instinctive apparatus just has them do. The females often in animal species will go into heat that will send a chemical signal to the males to come mate. And that's all there is to it. Humans have a conceptual faculty and just like the conceptual faculty impacts and influences every other aspect of human life and nature. So it affects uh, sex 
and romance and human relationships for people too and has to be taken into account we are conceptual beings in our realm of values we're conceptual beings we are looking and in terms of looking for a long-term relationship we can only think of that in terms of concepts and so our abstract values are really what we are looking for in the physicality of our sex partner it is a sex for ayn rand is ideally a union of mind, a perfect union of mind and body just as economic production just as economic production is taking the realm of the spirit ideas and enacting them in physical reality so it is with sex we are taking our abstract values and enacting them in reality it is a when we find someone that we can admire that much and that it has a certain personal uh, significance to us in a sexual way this is now such an important value an abstract value it, it for a human it has to be treated in a conceptual way it can't be treated lightly that so ayn rand views sex in effect as a merging of mind and body spirit and matter just as in effect economic production and creativity is there's a sort of parallel there and she draws out the parallel in this essay just as she does so magnificently in atlas shrugged so for ayn rand romantic love is the most intense experience of pleasure a human can have and because of that it is important it is intimate it is personal therefore we should treat it seriously and we should bring to bear all of our conceptual thinking and values what we find attractive ultimately in the other person are what we regard as virtues embodied in the other person and our response is in effect an autom auto our automatic emotional response to seeing our values embodied in another person and when it reaches a certain level of intensity and completeness then our very integrity our very integrity requires us to have an appropriate uh, response uh, appropriately leveled response and so Ayn Rand was not only opposed to the thoughtless, mindless, standardless promiscuity, uh, you know, treating your body as a purely physical thing. She was also opposed to platonic love. If you do have serious feelings for someone, you're going to enact it in reality. Otherwise, you're just being a fraud, a hypocrite. So for Ayn Rand, it is a, it is a merging of spirit and, and matter, it, mind and body. Romantic love is a pinnacle of integration that way, as Ayn Rand sees it. And let me just say a little a word or two on the what the opposition to promiscuity issue, because I think it can be it. There's some steps that we're glossing over when we go when we say, as she does, you know, it's it's a serious value, and therefore you shouldn't be promiscuous because it can come if you don't really get what she's saying there it can come across as like a duty like oh you know i really would love to engage in this you know in whenever the chance arise arises but no i've got to treat this seriously and her real point is that you can't get the you can't get the value out of sex if you're not treating it seriously if you're not responding based on values and that the thing that the promiscuous person thinks that they're getting out of it or let me put it differently what they're actually getting out of it is something that is deeply harmful to them because 
insofar as you think you're just motivated by purely physical desires or something like that, as I mentioned earlier, what you're really trying to do is fill a hole where your self-esteem is. Um, and the, it, and so it's a, um, in the, it'll be unfulfilling and the kind of clear cut examples here, if you ever, you know, uh, I think what was it? 10, 15 years ago, there's this, um, pickup artist community. And one of the things that you see is that the people were much more interested in being able to report to their guy friends, like, oh, I had, you know, 12 or 50 or a hundred, you know, different girls. Um, than it was the enjoyment of the actual act of sex. And it's very much the kind of emptiness that we get in the fountainhead from Peter Keating, where he gets a jolt of approval from people saying, oh, you did a good job on this uh, drawing that, that you know Rourke actually did from him. Um, but five minutes later, he needs another jolt of, uh, uh, of approval because what he's really trying to do is fill his self-esteem and you can't actually achieve self-esteem that way. And so... What I'm trying to highlight here is the point of um, the 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 opposition to promiscuity is not a duty. It's not about you saying no to something that would be desirable, all else being equal. It's that you can't actually get enjoyment that way, and and so that's the the level of analysis that she's operating from. Right, you've defeated yourself in obtaining the key psychological value that sex can provide. You prevented yourself, in effect, from getting that if you're promiscuous. You're denying yourself that value, the highest value that sex can be. Wow. You're making it impossible for yourself to get the highest value sex can be. That's how I'm saying. Sort of a mask, a, a substitute crutch for what should have been a, see, in her view, it's a celebration of yourself and this other person. It's got to be just a complete celebration of your mutual admiration in, in effect for each other. If it's not that, then it's faking that. It's trying to get the psychological effect of that without its substance. Yeah, I mean, in effect, what you're doing is you're committing fraud on yourself. Like that's that's what you're doing is that you're, you're um, the... Well, I'll leave it at that. I think, uh, Jimmy, the way you put it was really good. Um, after that, um, there's a fifth layer um, on the argument of friend, and, and that is the conclusion that there is an antagonism to, to love as we have described it uh, in a romantic way. Uh, Don, could you comment a bit more on why the encyclical... I think you, you have commented this uh, already. But could you comment more on what why the encyclical wants to make a dichotomy between mindless sex and chastity? What is it trying to hide? Uh, what kind of real concept? I mean. Well, the one thing I'll add to what we said so far is just that I think oh, almost always that um, bad ideas are put over through false dichotomies because how there's always a plausibility to them. Otherwise they're never going to get traction. They're never going to have influence. Nobody's going to buy into them. So they're always, uh, and so what often happens is that you assume a dichotomy, you attack one side of it and it's, well, clearly then my view stands. And so if you create a dichotomy that says the, the, the Christian view of marriage and sex versus like the hippie kind of promiscuity or the pickup artist kind of promiscuity, 
well, anybody can see all the problems that are over there. And so they'll come to this side. Or what will happen is the hippies and the pickup artists looked and they see the problems with the Christian view. And then they say, well, look, we're, you know, we're going to embrace human joy and human happiness. And so you always need to be suspicious whenever you're, well, two related things. Whenever you're offered two options, be very suspicious that those are the only two options. And whenever an argument works predominantly by attacking something and treating that as evidence for the alternative, be super suspicious. And as we talked about, Rand has a very kind of uh, different view is that, um, no, there's such a thing as sex based on values for the sake of personal joy and happiness. And that is not falling victim to the sex's divorce from values, which is the hippie pickup artist kind of approach, nor the the view that sex is a mean to some means to something higher than your personal values, um, which is the kind of Christian view. And so the, 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 the way to think about it is, you know, always um, be look at, be on the lookout for precisely these kind of two false alternatives. And indeed, the, to, um, the, the whole mind-body dichotomy, right, is working by giving us this alternative that you can side with the mind or you can side with the body. And then Ayn Rand's view is like, no, there's another view, which is that, that they're not at war, uh, but they're integrated. And um, she once gave this wonderful example that captures kind of the way that dichotomies work in philosophy in particular. And Jim, I'm sure you'll recognize this and can fix it for me if I botch it. Uh, But that you'd start out with a um, rationalist kind of view of man has two eyes, therefore he can see only two things. And then you'd get, you know, two schools. Uh, You get the people who would say, well, look, no, we see a lot of things. So clearly it's because we have a lot of invisible eyes. And then you have the, the people who say uh, two eyes equals two things. And the, uh, of course, it's funny because we all in that case get that there's an alternative that we have two eyes that help us see the world, including all of the things in the world. Uh, but it's astonishing how often um, the it works the other way that we, that the, the third alternative is not even on the table. Right. It's kind of been taken off the table by the false debate. You see, we've controlled the, the parameters of the debate and Iran will often even make this point that is designed as a rationalization to eliminate this third option, getting it out of consideration altogether. These are the two choices and presenting really in effect two sides of the same coin as the only two options is just as Don says, it's just another form of rationalizing the conclusion you want to get to. And, and the encyclical apparently knows what they're saying because they, they talk about people having their first instances of love and they still ask people to renounce to sex. Um, so, I think we, given the, the time we have left, we, we could move to the sixth layer of the argument. And it's basically uh, that the church wants to be still arbiter of life and death. And could you comment on this comment? Could you comment on the encyclical's um, statement 
uh, on the Pope warning that governments will encourage contraception on some populations, while at the same time they are uh, encouraging contraception in some other countries. And what are the motives uh, behind that that statement, or at least what Rand thinks are the motives, um, James? Well, it's clear, you know, as I said earlier, there were some people who said, well, obviously the Catholic Church is taking a position against birth control because they want to, in effect, win the population game, have a lot of kids. They know those Protestants can do birth control, and so we'll beat the Protestants. But if that were the case, then why would they advocate laws that would affect Protestants in, in various countries, which they have, which they have? Um, so the motive of the catholic church has to be deeper than that it really does it has to be deeper than trying to win a numbers game they really do believe that they are that the laws should reflect what they see as god's plan at least as a rationalization to get people to feel bad about sex they want the cloud to hang over every act of sex they want to you know uh, you know, these uh, uh, drug addiction counselors used to give me a great phrase uh, in, when I was managing drug court for the DA's office. Now, as long as I ruin their high or their buzz, Christianity wants to ruin your high, your buzz during sex. That really must be the point. They want you to be psychologically cowed, as Ayn Rand comes around to saying. Um, otherwise, what, what's the point? Um, they would, you know, they're, they're grudgingly allowing sex in the first place, in effect. <laughs> but yeah, if you're going to have sex and it's God's plan to reproduce, well, you can't get, do anything interfere, to interfere with that. So we want this cloud hanging over every act of intimacy with your wife. So it's going to affect you. It, in effect, the motive must be psychological, right? To make you feel guilty and ashamed for having sex, for wanting sex, for being a sexual being. For regarding your, your spouse as a sex object wrong 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 you're not the one in control of god's plan for human reproduction you're just a an agent of his will even if you have to be an unknowing random one and of course that destroys any sense of self-esteem your life is not an end in itself your life is not your own you're just part of god's plan you can see this in catholic thinking in any number of ways for example end of life you can't have uh, any kind of euthanasia for the most terminally, uh, you know, ill, even in constant misery kind of person or the most vegetative state. That's against God's plan. <laughs> right. Life is life. <clears throat> and so we, in effect, uh, are slaves to God. And let me just say a point more generally about this idea that uh, of people wielding guilt. And I think you can see it in different aspects of life, the way that guilt makes you vulnerable, particularly what it does is it, it stops you from standing up for justice, and, and especially when it's justice towards yourself. So, I mean, think about uh, America, right, the, and the response to 9-11. It was, we didn't have the self-esteem because to say, you attacked us and now we're going to crush the uh, nations that threatened us. No, it was, well, we have to get all of the countries on earth aboard and we have to drop food on Afghanistan along with dropping bombs and we have to be proportional and we have to take responsibility for the civilian casualties, even if it means more risk for our own soldiers and so on. Um, and part of it comes from the whole idea of 
well, who are we to assert our own interests? I mean, gosh, haven't we, don't we have a history of um, interfering in other countries, you know, let alone the kind of um, uh, deep sins of our past, whether it be slavery or treatment of women and so on. And it's that whole kind of guilt perspective then that keeps a person that keeps a nation from engaging in self-defense. But then you can even think in more um, personal terms of you'll often get within relationships, right? Of, you know, I want to complain about um, my husband or wife not keeping their end of the bargain. Like, you know, why haven't you done more house chores? But on the other hand, man, I, I, I haven't been perfect myself. I've been lazy sometimes and so on. Uh, and sometimes that's within a relationship, you know, you want to like give the person some slack because you know, oh, they've been picking up the burden somewhere else. But the point being that whenever we don't view ourselves as morally in the clear, we're not going to or less likely to stand up. And this is one of the reasons why Ayn Rand talks about um, when she talks about moral judgment and uh, how to live a rational life in an irrational society. She talks about the need for a judge. And she says, all of us have to judge and be prepared to be judged um, to not um, have any earned guilt. And if you earn it, you know, work your way out of that because one of the, because it interferes with your ability to say, no, that person's doing something wrong and immoral because, well, how can I oppose that when I've done the same thing? So it's, in order for us to be able to stand on a moral principle, we have to know that we've stood by the moral principle. And that is, if we're going to call somebody else out and demand justice for ourselves, we have to feel like we're in the right. And to the extent a person feels guilty, they don't feel in the right. They don't feel willing um, to stand up and assert justice for themselves. And if you think the ultimate example in Rand's fiction of this is the character of Hank Reardon, who it's uh, precisely that um, he, he, he doesn't exactly agree with altruism, um, but he thinks it's more of kind of a personality quirk of his. Like, yeah, I don't really take that code seriously, but I guess it's right. You know, like I, I'm just greedy and want to make money. And he doesn't really quite believe that, but he doesn't really see an alternative. And so he doesn't have a sense that he's living a moral existence, but he doesn't have a sense that it is moral. And so it's that kind of guilt that I don't have the moral high ground then that um, makes him vulnerable to his attackers. And it's only once he learns from Francisco and Dagny that like not only uh, that what that his way of living is the right way, that then he starts standing up for uh, himself in the face of his attackers. And so um, there's a real deep, profound truth and psychological truth to the idea that uh, guilt makes us vulnerable to evil. And the key is evil people know this. The whole phenomenon that, of so-called gaslighting, uh, I think, overlaps with this, is that evil people, manipulators, they know how to prey on your guilt, your insecurity. And um, so it's, it's not surprising if you have people who are motivated by destruction and power less that they're very good at figuring out how to induce guilt. Yeah, and that's really what it's about, is to manipulate people emotionally. You look at Hank Reardon, and it is his acceptance of somebody else's moral code about sex that made him stay with this horrifically 
um, exploitative wife, uh, Lillian, and think of Dagny, his greatest love, one of the proudest things about him is his love for Dagny as one of, as a low, dirty, guilty secret. And that's in effect what that dichotomy does. Now, what does to a better person makes them feel something good, like their love for Dagny is a low guilt. But you see with someone like James Taggart, it's all going to be low guilt because that's the way sex is anyway. So for the bad people, they just turn into monsters like James Taggart and, uh, uh, <laughs> and ends up with his ugly sex scenes. And But for a good person, look at the effect on a good person, Hank Reardon, of just partially accepting the, the bad guy's code of ethics just for five minutes. What it's going to do is it's going to make you reverse your values so that you have this duty to this exploitative, dishonest woman, Lillian, who's just nothing but a social climber who's using you versus Dagny, this hero, this embodiment of all your values. And that's the low thing. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. You see, this view, this dichotomized view of sex makes you think that, that for good people often, that their best, that their worst, the, their, the best is actually their worst. When it's just the reverse. It's one of their highest virtues. One of the proudest things about him, it turns out. And he's been ashamed of it and been able to be blackmailed by it because of that, accepting their code. I think we we cannot go uh, away from this essay without discussing the issue of abortion, particularly in regard to this idea of uh, church as the arbiter of life and death. Um, but first, let me um, thank the super chatters, uh, Robert Naser, uh, Christopher Schmidt for the almost Tooney and Bonnie Bertrand. Um, none of them have made comments, but we appreciate that very much. Um, so discussing this idea of um, the church wanting to be like what, like the government, they were saying on, on one hand, no, the government has no issue in controlling life on that or um, contracep giving contraception to populations. They also say that abortion uh, is improper even if the life of the mother is involved. Could you comment a bit more on what the motivation behind that is um, from, from that perspective of the church being the arbiter? I think we said it. They want a cloud over every act of sex. More than that, if it's the life of the mother or rape that's involved, think of it, you're raped. You have to have that kid's, you have to have that rapist's child. You may not have had much uh, understanding. You may be a 13-year-old girl who really doesn't know much about sex. Going to force her to have that child too, aren't we? No, the church's position is absolutely vicious and inhumane on this point. It doesn't matter. You know, there are many people who take softer positions or anti-abortion about life of the mother and so forth, uh, incest, rape, thing, th things of that nature. The church does not. Any act of sex must have the potential, at least, of producing a child. And when we mean that, we mean she cannot terminate it even in the early stages of pregnancy. Even when this thing is a microscopic organism in her, that can't even be detected except, except with special um, uh, equipment, that it would still be murder as far as they're concerned. So she has a duty in effect. She is chained by her sexual nature, the curse of Eve, God's plan, 
She's chained by her nature to be perpetually uh, under the threat of pregnancy for every sexual act consented to or not, regardless of her context, age, or anything else, or her health. Um, viciously inhumane, viciously inhumane. When you think about the burden, the lifelong burden, I personally think it's irresponsible. And not that you, it's, sometimes it isn't necessary. I think it's irresponsible to have a child and just throw it out for adoption or foster care or something. That's irresponsible. You have a responsibility to this helpless thing you've brought into the world. Um, now, I can understand circumstances where you have to do that. But the fact of the matter is, what they're trying to say is, you have to have this child. Having the child is not a question of your choice. Remember the language of the encyclical. Man is not in dominion over his procreative capacity. We want to stress that point. A woman is not in charge of her own body when it comes to her procreative capacity. She is an instrument of God's plan. And she has to understand her uterus is an instrument of God's plan, not hers. She's not the one who determines the use of her uterus. It is God who has already determined that. So that every sexual act of any kind must be subject to not only pregnancy, but having to carry that pregnancy to term, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what that'll mean to the child's life, their well-being, your ability to take care of the child, how that will affect the rest of your entire life. It is extraordinarily cruel and inhumane based on a perfectly mystical understanding of uh, embryos given rights. Now, I happen to agree with Ayn Rand that a woman has an absolute uh, choice over what goes on with her body all the way to the end of pregnancy. It does not matter to me what viability is, and it honestly, it doesn't matter to me what the status is of the embryo. If a fully grown 30-year-old was inside of her, she would have a right to remove him from her body, even if it meant his death. It's her body. Just as someone can't, uh, who needs a liver tra or kidney transplant, and you're the only, say, uh, available uh, kidney. Can he, and a, a compatible kidney will come up in nine months, let's say, just to make the hatched example. D does he have a right to force you to loan him his kidney for only nine months? Minimal risk. Life and death to this person. And he's a fully grown person with a, all the full panoply of rights. I would still say no. He has no right to force you to loan him your kidney, even for just nine months, even if it was life and death even if he was one of your parents. And we're talking about a person who's a full grown person. Now, when we're talking about a fetus or an embryo, it becomes absolutely insane to be talking, to be comparing the needs of a, a, a born woman's life, her whole life versus this uh, potential, this fetus that is not even born yet. That's insane. Uh, yeah. Couldn't make my own position on uh, this any stronger, I think. But I, I think my position is at least as strong as Ayn Rand's on this. A woman must have total control of her own body, or you are in effect enslaving her, in my view. Thank you. Um, so there is a seventh layer on the argument, which is the material goal of both encyclicals. But I think I'm going to skip it, because uh, we will talk about popular and progressive later. Um, but I, I would like to move to the eighth layer and basically um, the purpose of the encyclical. And Don, we have talked about guilt, um, but could you expand more on what are what is the, the conclusion on, on the motive of the of the church in in this encyclical? 
And what are Ryan's views on that? So, Iron has a view of how human motivation works. And the basic view is that to the extent that you're trying to understand the world, you're using your mind as best you can to make sense of things, to kind of guide your life by your understanding, then you're going to form positive values, things that you want to go after to enrich your life, to make it better, to keep you alive, to help you enjoy your time on earth and that make life worth living. Um, but she thinks that uh, something else can happen that can look superficially like that, but that is actually antithetical to that. That is that if a person's irrational, that if they are characteristically turning away from reality, um, they can either just become like literally passive and become a couch potato and life passes them by, but it need not take that form. And what, what she thinks can often happen, uh, what she thinks that happens to a kind of non-thinker is that they become motivated by escaping negative emotions, particularly fear and guilt. And that what can happen to such a person who's motivated by fear and guilt is that they start to see other people who are vibrant, rational, happy as affronts as the, it if you remember the fountainhead rourke is at the very beginning of the novel we get we hear how um you know some people look at him and they feel kind of uncomfortable and like they have an instantly negative reaction to him and it's that his confidence and serenity being at home with themselves make them very aware of their own shortcomings um Think of maybe a more relatable example that even people who are not deeply evil, as we'll come to in a second. Um, if you've ever been lonely and you see a, a happy couple, well, some people will view that and go, oh, I want that so badly. But some people will view it and go, God damn them. I don't want them to have that. So the whole phenomenon of like Schadenfreude and taking uh, um, joy in other people's misery that if you reach a certain state of fear and guilt and that's your whole sort of motivation it it can turn into real resentment and envy and einron calls this hatred of the good for being the good and it's a desire to tear down the the valuable the confident the um the rational achievement happiness and Iron thinks that if you're in that kind of motivational state, one form that that can take or one way that can be exercised is that you become a power seeker, more or less ambitious, maybe just a little power seeker at the DMV who takes joy in sending people home because they didn't have 400 forms that they needed, even though they have, you know, 399, it shouldn't make a difference. Or uh, it can take more ambitious forms such as dictators who are going to run entire countries or run them into a ground and take people's freedom. It can also take the form of intellectuals who concoct whole theories to justify their hatred, to bring down a notch those pesky, let's say businessmen who show them up making so much money when they're not as smart as me and they didn't go to the best Ivy league schools and they can't quote obscure, you know, German philosophers and obscure French films and so they, they concoct these whole kind of ideological takes on the world. And I think she thinks that um, what the Vatican is, is in effect a place that as an institution 
has this kind of orientation and motivation and framework. And that's exactly what's trying to be achieved um, by the ideas that show up in this essay and then uh, uh, encyclical. And then um, the other one we'll talk about popular and progressive. Yeah. She says here something very powerful. Many Catholics and the Catholic experience in the United States bears her out exactly uh, uh, on this point that many Catholics will just simply ignore the church's teaching on birth control, even abortion to some extent, and then just feel guilty about it, which is exactly what American Catholics in the wake of this have done. Uh, over half of all Catholic married Catholics say they practice birth control. In other words, they're flatly ignoring their church's own teachings on the subject quite intentionally. Uh, that is exactly what Ayn Rand predicted. She said that was in fact the goal, to induce that ongoing guilt. I'm no good bow my head, feel the constant shame and guilt. That is the point. Thank you. And I think we can move to the conclusion. Um, I, th this question is going to be for both. Um, what does Rand think it's a basic conflict shaping the struggle of Western civilization today? And what is up to us to solve this problem? What do you think, Don, first? Uh, well, I mean, the the basic thing that she thinks is going on here is uh, ultimately it's reason versus mysticism. Um, but we can put it more in the in the context of this piece, which is that it's the issue is does the individual have a right to exist for the sake of his or her own happiness, and that that's really what is being undermined and attacked by this whole ideology. And then you need a philosophy that upholds the individual's right to exist for their own sake as an alternative. In this one, she says, the attack is on human joy. When we discuss the other encyclical that's on politics, we'll see, as she said here, the attack on ambition. What we have here is a two-pronged attack, and perhaps this one is even more insidious one than politics, psychologically speaking. Politically speaking, it'll be the next one. But in effect, what we have here is an attack on life on earth, happiness on earth, ambition, success, self-sufficiency here on earth. That is what's trying, what the church is systematically trying to undermine. Your life is not your own. It's not about your own personal ambitions and goals. It's certainly not about finding joy in life. Uh -uh. If you think that's what life is all about, you're wrong. Wow really, uh, from Ayn Rand's perspective, truly evil. Thank you. Um, so with those comments, I think we can conclude the talk of today. Uh, there's a last super chat from Robert Nasser. Um, good job, Alejandro. Thank you. Uh, no question here. Uh, yeah, I Thank have you. to second that. You do a great job, Alejandro. Thank you. And, and he also says that when Don Watkins and James Ballant are speaking, there's rarely any questions left unanswered. So it's also a compliment to you. And I agree. Thank you. Um, so with the concluding remarks, um, I think um, I can only urge people who are listening to this, if you want to continue the uh, conversation on sex, uh, but on other issue, you can go to Flirting with Reason, the third chapter on YouTube with Maria and Nikos. Uh, in half an hour, the same YouTube channel, they will be talking about the quicksand of friend zone. Uh, 
Um, and tomorrow, if I'm correctly, if, if I'm correct, uh, there's a, a communication bootcamp with Don Watkins, the second version. You can. Oh, the first um, great. I just want to recommend that and encourage everyone to check it out. Thank um, you. I agree. Um, it, it is for members, but you can join with 10, 10 pounds a month. Um, it's not that um, expensive, but you get pretty high rewards. Uh, but well, with that being said, I thank you uh, again for this incredible chat. Uh, see you next week.